Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and I'm going to say Happy New Year for 2019 again because this is the first uh, time that I've recorded myself in this in 2019. The conversation you're about to hear is with Martin Phillips. I actually recorded this last year. It's the last of the chats that I have in the vault. I recorded this when he was touring in, I think, October. So it's been hanging around for a couple of months. And um, we had a big old chat. It was actually my first time meeting him. I have interviewed him before, um, and I have corresponded with him a bunch. Uh, We were going to do a podcast about a year ago, I think probably the last time they were through Wellington touring, and it couldn't quite work out. And... um, and then there was the time that he was opening for Aldous Harding and it didn't seem appropriate for me to be floating around there um, to, to do that. Uh, there was talk of it and then there was talk of it not happening, so it didn't. Uh, so finally I went and met Martin in the boardroom of the hotel where he was staying the afternoon before he played a great show in Wellington. And uh, we talked th- we talked about all things chills, of course. And um, if we didn't talk about some of the things you would like to hear, that's because uh, there's a documentary being made and there's some things that he sort of agreed are, are slightly off limits. So uh, that actually gets referenced in this conversation anyway. And, and what I'm really referring to there is uh, a sort of ongoing story of Martin's health over the last few years has is, is, is been documented already. So um, we reference that, but we don't get into that in any uh, big, huge way. Instead, we talk about how he has um, opened for both John Cale and Lou Reed on separate shows. He's met Randy Newman. He's done all these amazing things as being part of this band that has been going for sort of some 40 years now with, with uh, um, you know, famously more drummers than Spinal Tap and several members that have come and gone. But this lineup of the chills that's around now and doing so well with the with the recent comeback albums and touring internationally again, this lineup's been around for close to 20 years. In fact, some of the members are clocking up sort of around 20 years. So it was great to it was great to hear about all this stuff and to and to unpack some of these amazing songs. We we do talk about you know the writing of. Leather Jacket and Heavenly Pop Hit and of course Pink Frost which is which is when I first interviewed Martin I talked to him about Pink Frost for my book on songs so it was nice to revisit that um, I, I love this conversation I love Martin's music and, uh, and, and, and talking to him uh, online and in this podcast about other music and about being a sort of I guess a pop culture nerd and a record collector that's a lot of fun and it was we got got to do a bit of that in this too so yeah I hope you enjoy this this is me talking with Martin Phillips of the Chills. Uh, first of all I, I feel like um, I mean we've this is the first time we've met I've actually met you two minutes ago <laughs> came in and shook your head but I you know we've, we've interacted we've talked on Facebook we've exchanged some emails and, and obviously um, you know that I know your music and I guess most pertinently in terms of how I know your music I, I email interviewed you for the book that I wrote and, yeah. and we talked about Pink Frost um, so you know which was which was you know um, to me that was one of the great and, and, you know, everything in that book I was really pleased to do but to me that was one of the great highlights that you agreed to share your your insight into that because because I think that's this Obviously, you would have talked about that song a lot, um, but that's a song that, you know, I did an interview with Kim Hill um, to promote that book, and that was one of the songs we played, and the messages started flooding into her straight away. That, well, you know, wow, we love this song, and, and I think you said, I don't think there's ever been a Chills gig where we haven't played it. Yeah, I think there's been th- there's been three. Yeah. Kind of in parts of Europe in the 80s or something, or 
we would just become pissed off and we, and we knew the audience yeah. was just sort of not really into it. And yeah, so yeah, let's, yeah. let's see what happens if we don't play it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of... But in the, yeah. in, in, the, in the overall story of the band, it's always there. It's yeah. a highlight. And, and it's just evolved again for this tour because yeah. for the last year or so we've been doing for this kind of like crowd rock jam that we came upon which kind of slipped nicely into it um, and we've just sort of gone back to the original opening, the original uh, intro which is nice um, but yeah it's weird, people come up and say it sounds exactly like the record and I'm looking at the two extra keyboards <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Um, and and the several years that have passed yeah. and, the, and, and knowing the different versions that yeah. have happened yeah. but I think what they're saying is essentially is that special atmosphere is still the same. That's, that's, that's well, this is it. This yeah. is what I tried to write about, and what you gave me great insight into is that quite outside of um, analysing the musical worth of the song, it creates a mood. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, I've seen you play it, I feel like any time you play it, that mood is conjured for people. Like it is, it's one of those songs, and people. You know, bands, artists are lucky to have that kind of song where it, instantly whatever they try to do to the song it takes people to that place, whatever version of it they offer up. Yeah, and for because I'm such a rudimentary musician still, um, although I have my own way of doing things, um, I, did, I just assume I could not do that solo and it's only the last, I think, two two, three years that I've actually realised there's a, way, a beautiful way of doing it solo and it's been going down really well so mm. to strip it right back down to almost it almost becomes a, a weird ballad that you'd see somebody singing mm. in, you know, in a kind of a Welsh pub or something because it, yeah. it, it suddenly becomes the death story which are kind of yeah, yeah, which is just almost hidden in the, yes, you know. but was the, uh, the inspiration for the writing of it yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's go way back. I mean, I'm, I'm keen to talk to you about whatever you want to talk about um, within your um, lifespan and, and particularly your musical lifespan. But if we could, I guess, start at the start and um, tell me a bit about um, when and where you grew up and what you were experiencing and how you came to music. I mean, I, I know you're an avid collector and consumer of not just music, but film and TV and comedy and pop culture and we'll, we'll get into that stuff but yeah. what was music the first aspect of that that, that grabbed you? Uh, well to put it in a bit of context I was born in Wellington 1963 we left when dad I think decided to go into the, into the ministry so the training was in Auckland I was 18 months old so I do actually have one memory of which was subsequently identified as definitely being that house, so pre-18 months, which is pretty cool. Wow. Um, but certainly even in Auckland, which I was there till I was four, that's when I first became aware of just the kind of, uh, well, listening to Peter and the Wolf and Carnival of the Animals and repeatedly. And there's still a, a haunting intro to this is the evening programme. Um, on one of the YC stations, mm. with a, mm. I think it's an oboe or something, which I'd love to find out what the little piece of music was, because mm. it was beautiful but tragic, because it meant I was going to bed soon, and um, at seven o'clock or something. Um, then we shifted to Milton, which was Dad's first position as a Methodist minister. It's like right down mm. the other end of the country, because mm. Mum and Dad's families are mostly North Island, particularly Wellington, mm. so it really was thrown into this weird situation. And of course, 
I was in Milton 68, 69, allowing for a kind of a slightly later summer of love. It was kind of, it really was a glorious memory of seeing, you know, sort of, or discovering pop music for the first time. The monkeys and the banana splits, you know, but also mum would have the radio on. And Mm. there's a strange memory of mum saying, look, man, I'm pointing at the TV, it's the Beatles. And I looked and I could not, I could only see people. And that just sort of really confused me. I was looking for Beatles. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, that, I remember that one. So that's, that's the first sort of inklings of pop music becoming important. Um, shifted to Eden in 1970 when Dad became university chaplain there. Notice as, as, as is appropriate for the time, his mum was just kind of like <laughs> being dragged along with all yeah, this. Yeah, she's just... Uh part of the chattels of the house that yeah. runs the children. She, <laughs> you know, she, she runs the, that side of the house. Yeah, yeah. not many years later she really put a foot down about being seen and being perceived as the, the parson's wife mm. and just didn't, mm. didn't want a bar of it. So we actually all stopped going to church as well. We we're, we're, were given the choice. Dad's never been, you know, sort of particularly worried about whether we attend church or not or anything. So that's his, that's his focus. It's his job. It's his life. Yeah. And he didn't really impact that on you guys beyond the fact that you moved because of the jobs that he took but lots of people moved because of the jobs that their yeah, parents exactly. yeah and I had a good conversation with him recently about the difference between Methodism here and England compared with American stuff mm. because when I tell Americans my dad is a Methodist minister that's just hellfire and brimstone and yeah. what I hadn't realised is they were the f- one of the first churches in pre-Civil War and stayed on through it, whereas most other people, most other British people, buggered off. So they were seen as being kind of allies of the Americans, mm. and but they, therefore bought into the whole Puritan kind of thing. So Dad's thing's always been more about social work, and that's really good. My kind of um, social awareness, I guess, started there. Mm. Mm. Um, and in Milton, sorry, back in Dunedin, because he's university chaplain, we had. <coughs> um, most of our babysitters were kind of like young hippie couples and stuff that they had at um, the Bible kind of study group or something. And they'd sometimes bring around their own records. So I heard a bit of stuff then. Mum and Dad did an encounter group session about 72, 73. So um, we had uh, Carol King Tapestry thrashed for, mm. and then as kids do for every single birthday and Christmas after that we bought them other Carol King records yeah, so yeah. Um, you think you've made that connection you don't realise you're boring your parents to death really but, so <laughs> music was really strong mm. but I've got this weird thing where I just assume I can't do things that normal people can I couldn't play sports I couldn't understand things so I didn't understand anything about records that you could actually just go and buy them and I thought that if you liked a song any song on the radio you could buy it because they released all songs as singles when <laughs> we bought the album mm-hmm. um, so my first record was Zora and the Oranges but the first proper record was a compilation called Rock Explosion which was advertised strongly with a suite on TV and mm-hmm. that was my early stages of rebellion so um yeah, glam, glam rock. I had posters of Alice Cooper and The Sweet long before I'd heard their music. Right, and yeah, yeah. Just because just I knew it disturbed my parents and Bowie and <laughs> it was great. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. And that New Zealand is very much the... There's the tyranny of distance at yeah. that point, which we don't really have now. The world is connected now, but 
back then it's like you're waiting six months, sometimes longer, to be able to get things that you've ordered, if you're even that lucky. Yeah. So you hear of things before you hear them. Yeah, yeah Sometimes exactly. for a long, long time. Well, my sisters were buying uh, Tiger Beat and 16 and stuff, and they'd devour the Osmonds and, and so on, which means I actually got to keep the two good Osmonds albums. Crazy Horses and The Plane are both really good. Mm, mm. Um, and, you know, one of them was produced by one of the West Coast pop yeah, yeah, yeah. Um But I'd, I'd, I'd go through them afterwards and find the Alice Cooper articles. There was a, a, a trans, transformational one where Alice um, introduced you to, to his friends or something, and it was like, again, the Stooges, Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground, Black Oak Arkansas, for some reason, was in there, so it must have been a label thing. Um, who else? Who was freaky back then? Oh, Slade was there. Uh, so all of a sudden I had these names, and he talked about my friend Iggy swinging from the rafters and yeah. smearing his body with raw meat, and things even more unbelievable than that. You know, I think rather than cut himself up, mm. the blood was raw meat that was, you know. So then it started trying to track down the Stooges and, um, and yeah, just had this weird, weird mail exchange with a, a kind of pen pal in England who sent me two copies of War Power. Um, and yeah, it was kind of like, never, never look back after wow. that. Yeah. So, so what else is going on for you as a, as a, as a child and a, a young teenager? When do you connect with music on a level where you want to produce it? Like when do you start playing or grasping the idea that, you know, I can translate these records in some way, I can do my version of them? And, and, and what else are you interested in? before that becomes, I guess, an obsession like a, or a connection point? Yeah. Um, I was a very dreamy kind of kid, so not a huge comic book reader, because, again, I didn't quite know how that worked. You know, I, knew yeah. that I didn't understand all the comics because you knew there was backstories. And it would be hard to keep up with them here then, I guess, too, yeah. like series-wise. Again, we're just so... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Removed. But, you know, I was reading... Already reading sort of Arthur C. Clarke and the C.S. Lewis science fiction trilogy, if, mm, if you read that, mm, and that mm. kind of stuff. H.G. Wells short stories in particular. So I was just really often a, often a dream. Really, I think quite seriously thinking I was going to somehow find a way out of this and, you know, like H.G. <clears throat> Wells' door on the wall, just sort of walking through someplace into. Um, you know, I'm sure if I'd thought about it, I would have tried a lot of wardrobes <laughs> to get into Narnia. But, um, yeah, and just being pretty miserable at school, I don't think my parents had any idea just how much of a, uh, an outsider I kind of was until, mm. you know, mu- much, much later we talked about it. And I think it was part of sort of growing up anyway, these well, school's always tough, you know. So... I remember just as a, uh, another slight aside, there was a songwriting competition around the time of kind of, um, what was some of the New Zealand talent, talent quest? Was it, what was it called? On New Faces, that kind mm, of thing. Mm. Around that time, there was a, you know, send in your song, and I tried to write one about the trees being chopped down or something. But that's like three or four years before, before everyone at school was talking about this band on TV the night before who were going to set fire to themselves before they were 21. And um, I thought, what a bunch of dicks. Everyone was saying at school they were a bunch of dicks, except for a handful of people who seemed much more interesting, saying, wow, did you 
finally seen the Sex Pistols. And it's like, <laughs> So um, I started sort of hanging around these people. I also bought myself an electric guitar, learned to play Sweet Jane on one string. They got wind about these cool people and asked, asked me to join the band the same, which they'd already had one rehearsal. So mm. I kind of forced into it because um, I would have been too, way too nervous to do anything like that myself. And next thing I know, one of them's arranged for us to support The Clean on their first solo gig after um, the enemy had split, or the first headlining act. Mm-hmm. So that's um, April 79. Although the first rehearsal is October 78, so 40, 40 years this year since I first sort of actually started playing. And Looking back, I don't think it was obvious at the time, but with hindsight, that was it. It was just kind of mm. Mm. the excitement of, wow, it's, you know, just with these crappy little amps. I had a five watt guitar amp, and it still sounded like the most menacing thing I'd ever heard. Mm. It was great. And, and you know, I talk to people, you, you will have talked to people and met people, loads of people that make a 20 or 30 or 40 year career in music move through a lot of different phases and a lot of different bands and a lot of different band names but you on in some sense arrive fully formed as the chills it's a long time before it really gets noticed that it's entirely your vehicle uh, and you alone and you and whoever's with you but for all intents and purposes when when you martin phillips make music it's as the chills and that's quite different to a lot of other people who have many stories. I mean, you mentioned the, the kids at school, but have many stories of successful or mildly successful or complete failures of bands. Yeah. You sort of essentially are in and on the scene as the chills and then forevermore with some some breaks. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a hilarious thing that you, you see any of these British bands talking about how they started. And it is exactly like... Spinal Tap. We were the Tensmen, <laughs> then we were the yeah. such as, then we were the, the new Tensmen, but yeah, then it yeah. wasn't yeah. <laughs> the new originals. The new originals. <laughs> and, and yeah, they jumped round. Mm. For me, luckily, there was the one cry band, which essentially for three of the members went into the first chill. Yeah. So, but that was meant to be a sort of a Peter Gutteridge and my combined vehicle, having discovered the cramps and everything. Yeah. So, but he was not playing at that point. It was more about posturing and. He lasted three gigs, I think, um, before I think he went back up to Auckland. When he came back down and he came and watched us rehearse, he wanted back in, and mm. I had to sort of politely say, no, we're working much better as a four-piece. And I don't regret that, because, you know, out of his frustration and, and, and uh, hatred of me for that, um, came Snapper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't know if anybody else ever called him Buddy but I did and there would be good reasons for him to aim that angry song at me because he could not accept that he was so cool, gaunt had all the moves and this ridiculous little guy was just sort of being acclaimed you know, it it, it was just bizarre Well I wanted to, I mean maybe we can get into that now, I wanted to say to you, it's interesting the number of people, you know, people for a long time talked about all the different, you know, you referenced Spinal Tap, all the different versions of the chills, the different lineups. But one of the aspects of that that's interesting is the number of people that have come into and through the chills that have either done something of note beforehand or certainly afterwards. Um, you know, you've got David Kilgore was involved with, with you. Yeah. 
are obviously quite periphery. Um, Peter Gutteridge you've named, but you know Justin goes off and is part of Luna, yeah. which is an international band, and obviously the the remnants of well Luna reformed in fact just recently, but the remnants yeah. of Luna had carried on for a long, long time and and and, and permeate Dean's work. For long, um, and and I wondered what what Martin Kane, Stuart yeah, Webb, yeah. yeah. So I wondered what, I guess what that quite outside of the the uh, dynamics and difficulties of holding a band together and of people coming through it and so forth. Um, what that's meant to you in terms of this, you know, if we were to draw a diagram, we're sitting in a boardroom right now at a huge table. We would need most of this table <laughs> to to really chart what the chills has come from and what it's fed into and led to well, which is fascinating you know and it, yeah. and it goes broadly international it's not just Dunedin it's not just New Zealand it's yeah we've actually got the beginnings of that because I don't I don't know if you heard there was an exhibition um, things change Martin mm, Phillips and the chills mm, in Dunedin mm. and one of the things that Martin Kane is working at Polytech got his mm. students there was a, a proper timeline so you get all the members colour-coded to what they play. Yeah. It spins off the albums at the moment, but it won't be hard to actually keep adding to it and have these... Like a family, like an yeah. actual family track. So, yeah. um, yes, it's, it was a tricky thing to kind of nail down. I think I was really lucky that I was a natural archivist from the start, but also I'd watched people like Chris Knox who, mm. um, you know, they had the, the toilet book that they carried around when they stayed in the cookhouse in Dunedin. I saw this book and they'd all kind of like draw cartoons and put the flyers in and, um, and keep the set lists. And this became aware, of, even before we really started, of the importance of keeping track. So I had all this information about who had been in the band when and when the videos had been done and, and all this kind of stuff. But um, the pros and cons were when people left and somebody else came in, there'd be an entirely new angle on the music and a, a different direction. The sad thing is that a loss of at least one really good album, probably two, I think, from the early years, what should have been done. Mm. Um, but, you know, then it, now it's just it's become a real annoyance, this sort of constant talk of the, the children's revolving door policy. You know, hello to the members of Clock Up 20 Years next year. I was just going to say, like, since the, the, the last proper reformation of the chills, we've actually got quite a concrete band now, right? Like yeah, you, it's you have 20, 20, 15 and 10. <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah. so far, which is far more than the original um, line, uh, not just lineup, but the original run of the band. Yeah, well, so it's pretty yeah. much over half the band's history, or well, nearly half was one. Yes. One band now, yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, so I mean, to 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 kind of clock it. Essentially, the chills runs from 1980 to 1983. The, the, the roughly the first proper incarnation of the band. That's that's already about four bands. Exactly. I was going to say yeah. there's already a bunch of lineup changes in there. Yeah. But that that gives us, you know, your direct involvement in and um, and part of um, this legacy of the Dunedin sound, the birth of Flying Nun. You, yeah. you're, you're one of the bands that's represented on the Dunedin Double, which is, you know, an iconic piece of New Zealand yeah. music recording. But and these are very early days for you as a as a performing musician. And these are your some of your earliest works, which again, you know, you still are still representative of the band and your sound and yeah. Yeah. 
Well, one of the things that has been talked about lately is that was a crucial. I mean, I, you know, there were another major band was the one that came after that, that did the kind of the doldrums, mm-hmm. lost EP kind of thing. Mm. But that '83 period is crucial because of the, um, well, because of Pink Frost, mm. because mm. of just a general switch into realizing, hey, we've actually this has just moved them to a new level, and people start to take us seriously, and are we going to try and run with this? So mm. that's where it went from just being kind of, uh, I don't know, you know, it moved away from just being a fun part of the Dunedin scene to a much more serious kind of proposition, mm. I think. Mm. Particularly the brief name change for Wrinkle in Time as to, um, I don't know if we, we had one weekend, we yes. would call that just because I thought it would be rude to carry on uh, with Martin Bull's, after Martin Bull's death, but then suddenly saw it the complete opposite. That's what he would have wanted, having contributed to that kind of thing. Mm, mm. Um, so, yeah, that was, a, that was a real... That was also when we were starting to hear that John, John Peel was playing our stuff and some of the American college radios as well. So Yeah, well, what, I mean, what, what was that like for you? Because, I mean, you know, that's, uh, you know, now we hear these stories of little bedsit productions, people that have, you know, done their time in a relative sense, they've toiled away, but they've sent their music out and been able to send their music out to the world. Whereas, uh, you know, you're a person in that era where, you know, you've, you've just been making your music and then you find out that actually it's made it to the world. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it wasn't a conscious like we're gonna be big, we're gonna we're yeah. gonna do this and we, we deserve to be heard. It's it actually comes back to you that wow, we've been heard far outside our circle. Yeah, it's a good point actually. I hadn't thought about that because especially when you look at the when you see kind of the Manchester scene mm. bands, mm. they talk about how much they would send tapes to DJs and do all this work and we didn't do any of that. And it really did kind of fall in our laps. And knowing me, I probably would have asked people who was John Peel. I mean, I, I didn't follow any of the music papers, mm. I didn't do any of that kind of stuff that I should have. Um, just very, very insular. But all of a sudden, people were excited. Dark Hood was our manager at the time, that's when we just started touring relentlessly up and down the country, getting money to get overseas as quickly as possible. Um, one thing I found recently, going back through the diaries, was when we supported Lou Reed in 84, 85, New Sensations I think it was, mm-hmm. um, I found in the diary that oh, Lou Reed apparently told somebody that he listened to Pink Frost on the plane and would like to produce us. And for years, my head was John Cale who'd said that, but mm. it was actually Lou Reed, which is really odd, because do you know if any time he's ever produced anybody? No, I don't actually. I think he, I mean, he wrote some songs specifically for people, but yeah. I don't know about outside production, no. Well, it's weird, so yeah. it, it could be a, a story through, I mean, he's obviously interested, but yeah. and, and really, really like the sound of Pink Frost, but for him to want to produce it, no, I'm sure that's got sort of mixed up. Maybe he wanted to introduce us to a producer or something. But you know, it was all of a sudden these big things were happening like that. It's interesting the spell that Lou Reed and, and, and particularly, I guess, the Velvet Underground had over and continues to have over in some way, but certainly back then seemed to be reported as having over, I guess, the Dunedin bands in particular. Um, 
you know, Flying Nun and then, and then beyond that, some of the Auckland groups and that. And I guess, yes, you've got these twin figures and, and the, you know, as much as people call Lou Reed the godfather of punk, you could actually have called John Cale that for his, yeah, for his production uh, that he did on certain key albums and then also for his solo albums that he moved into. Yeah, in some ways he was the braver, the braver of the yes, two that's by right. the yeah, scope yeah. of what he did. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, it was it was always simplified. I think the Velvet Underground were always something derogatory to throw at the delete and sound to kind of... <clears throat> but it was related to because of, as Roy Colbert mentioned in interviews, just the the sheer quality of the songs, and they were simple songs, you know. Mm, mm. Um, and again, that would have been Chris Knox's influence. But what I keep trying to push to people is Sneaky Feelings were really into kind of like not just West Coast kind of birds... Um, love, but also Atlantic R&B. Um, you know, introduce me and others to Aretha Franklin or um, Al Green, that kind of stuff. You know, mm-hmm. and then there are others who are really getting heavily into Wire. Or it was when Spoon did that massive reissue of all the Can stuff in the early eighties. So it was a really big influence. Um, so quite, and Roy Colbert was throwing in. Incredible string band or Sandy Denny or something, you know. Mm, mm. There was a lot of stuff going on. Mm. Um, so, do you have much more of a memory of, of um, supporting Lou Reed? Uh, I remember being terrified because. Yes. Um, <laughs> People were terrified enough just to attend some of his concerts, yeah. let alone to be on the bill with him. Yeah, well, at the concert, he'd, he'd made a known that if anybody threw anything mm, he, he, said, he said he was off and then somebody threw a jam and he had had a spectacularly bad appearance in New Zealand in the late 70s where he had, the show had been called off and yeah. he was too gone to perform right and he had to perform the next night and yeah that was the tour before I, yes. first, saw yeah, yeah, yeah. I first saw the um, Street Hassle tour right and, and that was chaotic <laughs> Oh, that was beautiful. That was fantastic. Right. Yeah. What you saw. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, the you know the document of that. Right. The live album. That's pretty pretty chaotic. Which one's that? Which is Techno Prisoners. Yeah. I don't have that. It never never not owned it. Yeah. It's it's one of the best stand up comedy albums. Yeah. That's not an actual stand up comedy album. I must track it down. Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. Did it ever come out on CD? I don't think I've ever seen yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to have the I've got the, I've gone back to having a vinyl copy of it, but I had the yeah. CD copy of it first. It was around. Yep, yeah. Cool. I'm going to yeah. it down. Yeah. But anyway, uh, our sound check ran late and he'd been very strict saying he wanted them off stage by the time they got back. And there were technical problems with the PAs who all of a sudden turned around and Lou Reed's like five feet away just glaring at me and I was like fuck this that is not how I wanted to be that must have been a death stare <laughs> yeah and just very quickly when I was road he said Lou it's not their fault we've had PA issues and he just kind of nodded and then sort of walked back off again I was like fuck you know there he goes the kind of hi Lou yeah I'm, yeah yeah know. I'm a big fan <laughs> yeah. and then that evening after the show we were all sitting around at two different tables and Doug got uh, got invited over because he was doing Looney Tours mm. and bought them he got invited over to meet them but we didn't which is always why I never thought there was much substance to him wanting to produce us or anything. yeah right right but you know it was uh, only the next year we did the ends with a bang tour on some pretty big stages or the same no the same year yeah yeah I was going to say that'd be 84 yeah yeah that's right yeah so things things were happening and to say I took it in my stride would be a kind of a weirdly accurate it just seemed like oh 
this is what happens. This is the trajectory. Yeah. Like, this is what I kind of signed up for. I didn't know it at the time, but this is fine. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah, is I'm good. Quite, quite happy with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things are rolling along. Yeah, I just don't remember being tremendously excited about any of it or. It was you know, work, and it was. I wouldn't have seen it as work then. No, no, but like, it was. It was. You know, I'd, yeah. I'd, I like the the songs. Good people like the songs. More people are liking the songs. Um, mm. I don't know. Just mm. so weird when I look back that so many people put so much effort into their presentation, mm. into the instruments they played. I knew nothing about that. I was still only just learning how to use effects pedals properly at the moment. Right, right. Um, it was just kind of I liked the Fender Coronado because it was blue. Yeah. Like, I had, had, how did the poor Max Satchel, who was in early um, sneaky feelings, until he sold it to me? Yeah, yeah. And it was just, you know, weird. The, the strange thing about it was people started to recognise that somehow my instinctive kind of weird approach to this was actually working. Mm. And in some ways they gave me too much freedom with that. They didn't say, oh, Martin, maybe you should just pick out of those new songs, just pick the three best ones, you know. You don't need to play every little thing that comes out of your head and that kind of stuff. Well, you, you talked to me through a little bit of your writing process around Pink Frost, but how indicative was that of your writing process in general and how, you know, uh, if we take, say, that, I don't know how it's, much it's changed, but if we take the the initial trajectory of the chills and let's say basically the, the entire 80s through to the very early 90s, you know, did you have a set writing process? Or how did you arrive at songs? How did songs come to you? Um... Is it different every time, or...? Well, certainly Pink Frost was exceptional. And yes. <coughs> and I, knew, I kind of didn't take long to feel that it was. Just you knew you'd got... Beamed, beamed something. in something yeah, special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't, wasn't alone. I mean, a lot of songs that end up being kind of average feel like that at the time. And the, the riff, which became House with a Hundred Rooms, for example, I thought was going to be at least as good as Pink Frost. And... There's a whole series of failed pop classics, <laughs> um, things like Party in My Heart. When I first started doing that riff, it's, it's such a great riff, mm. and that song is just so kind of missed the mark by a mile. But, um, and I'm still doing that. <laughs> it just seems like the, the more obvious a pop song is, the more it just gets tangled up. Mm. And because I've never found, I've never found the big, huge, my version of the Beach Boys meets the Bell Underground chills kind of weird thing for those big pop songs. Mm. They inevitably end up too twee. It's just like everybody hears them to die. You want to write a pop song. So, we're rock band, you know. We play loud and my fingers bleed. <laughs> it's kind of, and it's true, it takes a lot to get that across to people. So, I mean, for a lot of people, the, the an early significant song outside of Pink Frost is Leather Jacket, of course, mm. in terms of, and again, it, it kicks us off with this, well, iconic riff, like it's got a, it's got a, an energy and a drive about it that is set up in its opening moments. Yeah, to me that was so close to being like a sweet song, or Gary, mm. or no, mm. more particularly Gary Glitter, mm-hmm. that I wonder if we should, should even do it. Um, I think that week, or I'd heard um, who did I'm in love with a German film star. I always forget that I'm in love with a German film star. So I'm in love with a German film star. 
you'd be able to look at that. Mm-hmm. But, so the initial title was I'm in love with, in love with AD the jacket or Mighty the jacket. Um, but yeah, I think the lyrics for that would be just like one outpour. Of, once I realised that's what I want to write about, that Martin Bull. But yeah, I think it just all came out very little tweaking. And that's, that's kind of unusual. I have a, a special connection to that song and it is the the very first band that I joined that played covers. I think it was actually the very first song we, we auditioned and I was I was fifteen. Yeah. I was sixteen and I joined a band everyone else in the band was uh, yeah, twenty six, twenty seven. So that you know, they would have grown up with your music and been at you know, and and they want the rest of the set was things like Hoodoo Gurus and right. you know lots of 80, 80s stuff that you know fit that bill mm-hmm. and a, and a bit of that you know we played the sweet we played uh, you know glam stuff we played obviously we played Bowie um, but I feel like the, certainly the very first rehearsal I had and so that was my first time hearing I love my leather jacket and I just kind of you know, what the fuck is this? This song is great. Like, it's, it's you know. And, um, yeah, so that when I hear it, that's never left me, you know. And, I mean, you, you know that experience of when a song hits you that way. You've had that impact on people as a writer, but yeah. I feel like you know what that's like as a listener too. Oh, yes, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a weird one because there's not a lot of room to sort of do things with that song. Mm. Um, it can be more intense or it can be slightly less intense and it, yeah exactly it, yeah. it presents in the form that it's in and it yeah. would be unwise to try and yeah. fuck with that in any way like we, you we do it for a little while where I'd do the intro much slower dun, 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 and move into it yeah, and then yeah. it would hurt I was going to say you could, you could elongate it yeah. but that's about it you yeah. can kind of like jam into it or something yeah. but really you need to present that song but it's, it's funny that um, I guess I guess people don't really know the Pink Frost didn't make much that, that much impact at the time. You know, it was kind of mm. which would be crazy to song. anyone that's you know knows it and loves it now that yeah. wasn't but, uh, alive ja- at the time of it. Yeah. yeah, leather jacket was and probably I'd say will always be the one that we're most known for in New Zealand. Mm. It just mm. really hit that kind of. Yeah, I mean, even crossed into the kind of gang thing. I heard gang people come up and say my friend got killed on a motorbike and left me a jacket mm. and that kind of stuff um, even heavily pop it kind of nearly knocks it out in some markets but overseas it's just kind of like well down the list and, and we're the right. heavily pop heavily pop hit band in America and in Europe definitely a Pink Frost band so yeah right yeah which is a, and that, well that kind of makes sense I mean you know yeah. if, if you're going to orchestrate a divide or explain a divide between a band and its fans, that, that's a perfect explanation how those yeah. songs would do that on those on those particular continents. Yeah, exactly. Which and is I, nothing you can plan. <laughs> you no, know. no, exactly. But I do, I do think it's one of the best things that's happened to us is that we haven't become we uh, a one hit one, mm. you know, one the band, or the, the one key song that we have to play, because um, you very quickly get into the next echelon of doldrums. Royal yes. Moon, Kaleidoscope World, perhaps Come Home, mm. On Coming Day. So there's a lot of songs that are kind of that we can alternate. And well, you have a genuine these days. You have a, a genuine greatest hits set that you can deliver. 
Yeah. You know, you have, you are creating new material, and the new material is um, relevant and good and indicative. You know, like it's recognisable and all of that. But it, were you to not consider the new songs and just play stuff that's from the 80s through to the early 90s, you have a genuine greatest hit set in New Zealand, certainly, and I imagine in yeah. other territories too. People people recognise this stuff. And, you know, I, I was made aware of that. I mean, I've seen you play solo a few times and, and I've seen different versions of the chills, but when you played the Arts Festival a couple of years ago, when they built it as the Dunedin Double, it was you guys one night and the Verlaine's the yeah, next. Right. Yeah. You know, your set was like, man, this is... These are pop hits, you know. Yeah. May, maybe not all of them actually were, in terms of charting and doing big, big things. But to hear them, to yeah. hear them rolled out like that, it's like this is, you know, this is a jukebox. Actually, just for, for fun, on paper, recently put down, we listed them all. Once you get them to Night of Chill Blue, and this is the way, and mm. a few others. There was more than enough for a, a complete set, which was really good. Yeah. But it's interesting to talk about that, that gig. We, the other thing we talked about recently, in Dunedin last week, the gig we played, everybody there said it was the best Chills gig they've seen this lineup do, which was in 20 years, and that really puts it up there with the best gigs we've ever done. Yeah. Or, you know, as a grown-up band, not the kind of full-on mm-hmm. younger band. But we were talking about what was some of the worst ones we've done, and that Wellington one came up, because I just remember that night... We just sort of lost our mojo. It wasn't just because people <laughs> were sitting. Yeah, this yeah. Was really there was hard. a real weird distance between the band and the, like yeah. because of the venue. Like it was, but and I imagine that's what it was. Well, no, like, it part wasn't because we, yeah, part of it. But we've done that before, and that's fine. But I know what part of the problem was. I had a, a massive choking attack a minute before I came on stage. I was having trouble breathing, and that really shook me. <laughs> Did you know <laughs> that um, when you're a fetus? the same tissue that builds your stomach builds your lungs more or less so they're finding these weird connections between stomach problems and lung problems mm. and so what's, what's eventually they worked out with me after five years of tests was um, this rotten cough I had that would start to mm. clamp mm. my throat up was caused by my liver causing silent acid reflux in my stomach that was getting into my lungs and so I'd just start this coughing the huge amounts of phlegm and then my throat would just clamp up. It was the most frightening thing. So I'd basically walk, just managed to get breathing again and, and I think the intro music was already playing or whatever it was. Mm, mm, it was mm. a weird wow, gig. right, yeah, yeah. And it was just really, I remember we sort of came out and you, you do your usual stuff, you talk to the audience, there's hardly any response. It's kind of like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hard work. Isn't it, isn't it funny that though, that I can say to you, that was great. And here's why. Yeah. And then the, you, the performer of the gig, can say, here's why it wasn't so good for yeah, us. No, yeah. And this, yeah. I feel like this is a very, a very common story, you know, and, 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 and both of us are right. Yeah. You know, I, like you're, I'm, not, I'm not saying you can't be right. That's your story, and I understand that. But also, as a person in the audience who knew just about every song and was blown away by a lot of it and loved it, yeah, and, and I'll acknowledge I, I, it was a pretty shitty venue and there's certainly problems with the space between the stage and the setup of it and all of that so I, you know there was definitely that yeah but it's funny that isn't it well it's, it's weird because I, I got told off for this by the main woman Karen Berg at Warner Brothers who kind of oversaw us 
she caught me telling this couple backstage after a New York gig. Um, they said they'd travel all the way from somewhere to see us. And I said, oh, damn shame you didn't come last night because it was so much better. <laughs> <laughs> and she pulled me aside afterwards and said, don't ever tell people that. that you know, that may be the only time they see you in their lives. Mm. And they, they were thrilled. And she was right, and I felt so bad about that. <laughs> but, but the other thing is that um, it's this whole thing of... It made me aware that our, even our lowest... You know, when we at our lowest, mm. we're still delivering, and mm. at a level which is And these songs mean stuff to you know to yeah. people that you can't ever quite know, yeah. or you know you can be vaguely aware of, and you can have a you can have an, an idea that yes, this resonates, but you can't know that this song that you think is only okay, and that maybe on the night you did an okay job of, but not the best you've even done it, is someone in the audience's absolute favorite song, and they traveled to see it, and they were blown away that they got to see it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so where are we at in the 80s? You know, so Leather Jacket, and uh, we talked about the, you know, touring with Split Ends, and so you've you've already been through a few lineups, one death, um, thought briefly about discontinuing the band in, in, in that name um, but then decided no no we're going to carry on Leather Jacket is essentially a tribute and then what happens from there like this is this is around the time that you start to hear this music's travelling further afield people are actually interested in this yeah it's a wee, you know. wee bit reversed mm. because because the Leather Jacket thing was so tied in with our first excursion overseas as well so right. Um, it was actually released after we got back from our first uh, six-week trip to London and Brighton. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, what brings home. that on? What brings that? What brings well, that trip on? Is it? Is it a? That, that's the result of people result, like yeah. Doug Hood and stuff being aware mm-hmm. that we've got to move now. There is some traction. We've got to jump in this. Yeah. yeah, and you know, on the back of that, we got we did our first peel session on that in that mm-hmm. six-week um, trip. Um, which in a lot of ways is kind of the best one because again I didn't know what a pearl session was and if I'd only known that people had much if I'd known that people had much more fun <laughs> did covers did outrageous versions we could have done had, we would have finally maybe recorded mm. Drunken Sailor we used to do this like right. full on kind of <laughs> Bo Diddley version I don't yeah. know if you've seen no, that yeah. there's a punk Bo Diddley version that was just <laughs> went down great fun that would have been the perfect place but um I, talk, I treat them uh, as a chance to get a, a free demo for upcoming songs as well. Mm. Try and you know, do one or two of them. It's an entirely the wrong way to go. But it, it's meant that the compilation that's come out of the three sessions, 12 songs, is actually mm. quite interesting. Mm. Um, but anyway, so we get back, at least the entire band in 86, and that again is a big momentous thing this for the first time I'm drawing on Aucklanders and people of note in bands like, like Caroline Easter and mm-hmm. stuff and have the kind of mana almost by then that mm-hmm. kind of say would you like to join the band and they and they kind of generally did mm. um, so and taking that band back down to Neaton where of course that was completely selling out you know he's taking it too seriously if he wants Aucklanders in the band and we just blew them away. It was just fantastic. One of those um, uh, co-op, not co-op things, um, uh, Chippendale House was kind of a, a venue that everyone kind of got going. And so the pressure was really on, and the Aucklanders 
knew it and we, we were just devastating. I remember George Henderson from the puddle reason he said you're like a buzzsaw and coming from him that's really good because he was very much seen as the other side, mm. the, the pure side of what was mm. happening mm. underneath. And then subsequently all these new members became great friends with all the kind of, you know, all the people down there, Alan Haig and Dominic from the 3Ds and that kind of stuff. And so we kind of had their blessing to go go further afield and mm. still say that we had Tibetan connections. You know. When did the um, American interest fully kick in? Or when did you become aware of that? Um, I think the first little inklings were on that first trip in 85. Um, I'd forgotten about that, but I just remember now a couple of smaller labels had approached us after after gigs. And then when we got back for the for that 87 period, or from late 86 I think it was, it was just all on. It was, um, I'm not sure if you've heard, but we got to this ridiculous situation where we had Warner Brothers, Sire, Slash, Atlantic, I think even. Mm. I think we had everybody except Electra on WEA and Sire being, as everyone said, the silent S and WEA or something. And Capital. That's right. What we need, what happened, we suddenly got this contract, not very good one, from Warner Brothers Central saying, mm. um, We've become aware that you know there's a bidding war between our our affiliates. So here's the contract. You pick the label. And it's like shit. There goes you know all this playing off each other. We were trying to do. We need one label outside that, and then capital came along. So all of a sudden, pretty much the price doubled. And I think initially we were going to go direct with Warner's, and they actually said, look, you'd be better off going through Slash. It means if we get a big Madonna record or something happening, we're all busy, you've still got your label mm, working mm. on us. But that took so long and it was um, a pretty miserable year in, in Britain. We couldn't just keep touring randomly, there was nothing more to tour. It was a cold rule all in squats. Um, yeah, just the usual twenties kind of stuff. <laughs> you, you, you somehow seem to end up occupying this space where you're you're creating these songs that are uh, um, almost like a Kiwi party guitar version of what Johnny Marr does on one level and then a Kiwi party guitar version of what Peter Buck does on another level which again speaks to this whole serving particular songs to a British or European market and particular songs to an American market. I wonder how, you know, you can probably see that now, mm. but how conscious were you of that at the time at all? Certainly not in the writing of the songs. Mm. It was just seeing mm. what got... Was, seeing what sticks. What, what <laughs> was well, more well-received in mm. each territory. Mm. Um, I think, as we kind of alluded to before, it wasn't a surprise to find that things like Pink Frost and Night of Chill Blue went down better and, mm. and the dark gloom of yes. um, winter in Europe <laughs> than... The more upbeat, yeah. summery pop yeah. things. And most of the real hardcore fans who who think I've lost it ever since the first four singles <laughs> live in America, you know. Just wish I could get back to that sunny, jangly pop. And it's like, yeah, okay. But, um, yeah, so they... That really resonated with them. It, mm. it was a whole different pigeonholing 
although, you know, in fairness, Warner Brothers seriously saw us as some kind of weird Antipodean REM act they could push, mm, push mm, for that market. Mm. Um, I think they quickly realised I didn't have the charisma or the polit- political nous or, you know, it was going to be done some other way and then everything kind of fell apart anyway. Uh so where does um, Heavenly Pop Hit come from? Because, you, you know, you, you talk about not being able to strike these songs, but certainly in terms of, uh, and I mean, I know that's had international success and, and interest, but certainly, I mean, that is one of these significant Kiwi songs and, dare I say it, a, a, an anthem for a Kiwi summer, if, if not other times of the year. It's one of these, you know, iconic songs that's been well represented over the years in movies and TV themes and, and yeah. you know uh, uh, compilations and playlists now yeah so, so take, take me back to where that comes from it was just part of the bulk of the writing for that led to Submarine Bells mm. certainly uh, as soon as I started playing the riff I thought this is, this is really special but there were other ones you wouldn't, you wouldn't think so now, but things like Tied Up and Chain were mm. also beautiful sort of songs in that development that, mm, mm. you know, I think sometimes things just don't kind of pan out. But um, by the time, by, even by the time we'd done demos and we're working on, towards the album, people knew that hopefully that's mm. going to come through as the single. You've mentioned a few times the, the riff being, you know, a key moment for you as a player and as a writer like going on onto something here so is it often a case of that almost cliche sense of sitting around with a guitar noodling and going oh, I've struck upon something I'll just keep doing this yeah and that, I think that was actually written or a on, keyboard, uh, yeah, yeah, keyboard yeah, on that yeah, one yeah. in fact it was a beautiful old Jensen mm, 60s mm, Jensen transonic mm-hmm. um, the saddest thing about the recording is that we had to approximate that in England because we didn't have the original right. keyboard. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I've seriously thought about re-recording it um, just to actually get that beautiful warmth of that 60s mm. valve rhythm, which was the driving force of that song. That was he. And of course it came out at a time when um, those were the first sort of seeds of a 60s revival of sorts. Yeah. You know, there were these, you know, bands and fashions and trends that were trying, you know, 20 years passed, just over 20 years, it was time to, I guess the marketers decided that before any of us were aware of it in a way, but it was time to to touch base with that again, and, and yeah. so that struck a good chord, as it were. I wasn't aware of that at the time, some of the bands that I, was, I now realise started at pretty much the same sort of time as ourselves, mm. like Dream mm. Syndicate or Green mm. on Red mm. or something mm. like that. You know, they're all influenced by the same thing. Yeah. Drawing on childhood memories of... Yes. Because it's the thing that when you listen to the 60s pop, even bands like Herbins Hermits and stuff, it's played so so powerfully, you know. Mm. These are guys who have, have to play through little amps and really hammering it. So um, it made perfect sense at the end of the punk post-punk thing to kind of, you know, incorporate melodies. Again, this Chris Knox thing, because you'd see Toy Love playing Yummy 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 live, and it was mm. just fantastic, and mm. you couldn't get more kind of um, bubblegum and kind of pop than that. And it still worked as a great punk song. Mm. Um, it's been interesting on this tour that when we're sound checking or doing the gig, it's happened, I think, three times now. 
because we don't sound cheap even in pop it because we, we know it quite well. Now. Yeah, I was going to say if there's if there's a song outside of leather jacket and uh, pink frost that is a given, yeah, at a chills gig, it's that right? Like, Unf- it, unfortunately, it, it's it, a harder song for me to sing. Right. Yeah. yeah, it takes a bit more out of you, but you also recognise people are going to want it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But what's been happening is um, quite often if you're looking out from the stage, it's dark or you can't. All you got is bright lights, but often the bar staff behind the bar are the only things you can see. Mm. And three times I've seen some of the bar staff go, "Oh, it's that band," you know. <laughs> yeah, this is the song that I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's um, <laughs> they might have sort of been mm. working their way to other things. Mm, all of a sudden, mm. it's like, oh, yeah. mm, mm. well, that's what I mean. In that sense, it really, really is an anthem. Like it has that, it has that charge to it as yes. soon as it kicks in. Um, so. What happens, sh- I mean, shortly after that is, is where we get into kind of the the first significant falterings and stumblings of the chills as a brand. Yeah. Yeah. And, wh- and what happens? How do, you, how do you understand that now? It's been a big part of this documentary. It's kind of happened to mm. really go into a lot of that. So that makes it kind of hard to talk about because sure. we're... Um, it's very, it's very involved. Mm. A lot of it comes down to, to communication problems, of which I've had to kind of shoulder most of the responsibility. And I'm, I'm aware that I, you know, I was not a good communicator. I, th- I think I expect people to read my mind a lot more than they were. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned before, I was on this kind of roll where people just assumed that I was going to immediately come up with something that was going to work. And I think that was allowed to go on just uncontrolled for too long. Um, well, we know that, you know, uh, we can get a little bit more into this, and I know, you know, this will come up on the doco as well, but drinking and substances come into your life, but are they in your life in any huge impact, uh, point at that moment? Or is not, it, it's, it's later? Yeah, it's later. So it's so, not, not even then, so you can't blame that. No, I, I've been, the drinking was creeping up, but not even, mm-hmm. not even sort of mm-hmm. daily or regularly at that point. Yeah. Um, there'd been a tiny bit of cocaine use which built up during the soft bomb sessions in 92. Almost as a tool initially for me because I, because I was end up being pretty much on my own against sort of, you know, everybody else and realised I was going to have to be the only one who was doing who's there every day, 12 hour days for the next whatever. And so um, I'd throw a little lump of cocaine into a can of uh, classic Coke, American classic Coke. Mm. And it would get me through, but then unfortunately, it was realised we had to extend the sessions for that by another month, and I realised that it was going to be addict- addiction, and it was, but not too hard to get over. Just went back to back to Dunedin, where there was no chance of me scurrying out and <laughs> scoring cocaine, mm. and went to sleep for about four days, I think. But um, it was a very dark episode. Uh, that all of a sudden, the the fun. Mm. Uh, there've been squabbles during Submarine Bell, but I don't think I think you know compared to what I saw, particularly with bloody British bands, God, they're nasty to each other. Um, we were doing pretty well, you know, says good-natured Kiwis generally. Mm. But Submarine Bell was just a darker atmosphere, kind of getting lost. I think everybody else was aware except me that times were changing very rapidly. With you know. Nirvana was along, and hip hop and rap and acid house had almost, almost over by, by then, I guess. But mm. um, 
major changes I thought as like a Randy Newman fan and stuff that I'd established myself as a kind of a, a songwriter you could trust yes. the vehicle, this vehicle yes. and that somehow I'd be able to ride this out and it just wasn't to be mm. So was that the you know I guess when we hear from you next significantly it's as Martin Phillips in the chills and so that I wonder if that answers my question is that the decision behind that to to really put your name forward to announce to people it really is the project of this guy he's the songwriter he's the you know what was the because that uh, I, that's the only I mean I know there's the the demos collection that came out under your name but um, under just your name but that's the only album that exists as Martin Phillips and the Chills right like then, yeah. it, then it goes back eventually to the Chills yeah it was only that one album yeah. and, and it was a misstep looking back but, and, yeah. and my reason was almost the opposite of what, you, what you're oh, suggesting because right. yeah, right. okay. what, what I thought was happening because I'd done a few solo shows particularly to promote mm-hmm. um, Sketchbook mm-hmm. and demos mm-hmm. was I wanted to really spell out um, this is Martin Phillips solo on the posters and on the records that were, that were going to keep coming as solo mm-hmm. and this is Martin Phillips with the chills mm-hmm. thus giving I thought the chills more of a kind of a limelight on themselves as an entity um, but I didn't realise it just kind of completely backfired and make it look like Martin Phillips with whoever he's using this Today. Time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, no, just even before we finished touring the Sunburned album, which was oh, such a, another sad, this chain of events went wrong. Mm. Um, and it, it's interesting, it arrives at a time when I guess a few of you from that era are wrestling with probably identity issues within music, either getting new bands off the ground, or like bike, or um, or, yeah. or establishing a solo name, or, you know, this is the, the first seeds of Dimmer, which, yeah. which essentially is a vehicle for Shane Carter and nothing else, but it was a band name. So there's all of this sort of stuff that, you know, some of them did very well and stuck, and others of them struggled a bit it's it's an interesting time it reminds me a bit of um you know you mentioned Lou Reed in the 80s like Lou Reed Dylan Joni Mitchell all those sort of people really struggled in the 80s to find who they were because they had to redefine it and I guess 10 years on that's what you guys were all doing your version of that yeah well I think part of it was the age thing as well Mm. uh what would we have been yeah, getting into all, all around our late 20s. And it was that mm-hmm. crucial time where those who were going to stay realised how, you know, yes. this is a serious decision. So yeah, yeah. it was no longer the... You it was know, growing up time. Yeah. Mm. We're talking 15 years since the yes. flying nuns yes. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which um, could be written off as the the thing you did as a kid. Yeah. And so now it was like, this either sticks or... Yeah, do it. And obviously a lot of people dropped out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, without getting too specific, but it was, you know, it was, it was sad to see JPSE and mm-hmm. the Abel Tasman and stuff mm. kind of more or less accepted yeah. the day jobs were the way to yes. go with families and, yeah. you know, some good music still came out, but you saw people dropping off and you kind of, and they kind of made you feel a bit like, well, you know, good luck to you sticking with your little teenage dream and mm. it's kind of, there's a lot to be considered and then... Personally, I, I tried to hone things back with Sunburnt to much more powerful, simple songs. And, you know. Like Come Home. 
Yeah, and which which really resonates off that album. Yeah, to this day, doesn't it? And there's, there's some there's some really good stuff yeah, in that record. Yeah. But um, people generally didn't get it, and because everything else is just so powerful, and that's what it was meant to be like. It could have actually done quite well. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it was just like the final backward step, and especially the tour after that, when um, realizing that being back on Flying Nun was just not big enough for the world, you know. Mm. And that was a heartbreaking time, it really was. Just kind of... And that, at that point, having said what I said earlier about having the ability to kind of ask people if they want to join the band, I don't think anybody ever said no mm. who didn't have a, a like, mm. sort of family commitments or something. Now it's like really hard to find quality people who did want to be associated right. with what was seen as a, a, a crumbling... A tarnished brand. Yeah. yeah. And then we get to, I guess, the headliners around you getting busted for stealing chocolate-flavoured milk and a pie. Choc- chocolate-flavoured no, milk, no, milk. Chocolate milk and... No, banana milk. This is what I always get confused. <laughs> banana milk and batteries. Right, right. Yeah. And Why did I think of pie? Because it's, I guess it's New Zealand and it's blow on the pie. Yeah, and, exactly. But I remember that, I do remember that story. I've got the details muddled there, but I do remember that story. Um, what what was it like waiting through that for you? Where were you at with that? Oh, it was just, it's just one <laughs> of the more public, mm. dark things that happened during, during a long series of broken relationships and really just awful... I never sort of stopped trying, but nothing seemed to work. You know, no, like, mm, as you've seen, mm. Tarnished Brand was hard to attract people. I couldn't do it by myself. Even trying to get home demos done, I'd just get enough money together to get a bit of, a, you know, a bit of home recording gear. And then, um, like, a big dental bill, or, or I'd crash the car, or, or, you know, just... And because I was getting further into drugs at that point, you know, mm-hmm. self-medicating, um, the gaps between things, between being sort of functional enough to actually kind of try and take those steps, mm-hmm. was just longer and longer. When you say really self-medicating, you mean um, easing the pain of these things you mentioned, and also the the I guess the loneliness of not being as popular as you'd be, not, you know, song-wise, gig-wise, album-wise, not being as accepted, not being... Yeah, I guess so. I, I think it's reasonably apparent to people I've never been... I'm not, like, I'm not sort of ego-driven to the extent of, like, Prince or something yes, like that, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, but at the same time... Um, what I put out through my music is very personal, so when it's yes. either criticised unfairly, I'll take. I can I can mm-hmm. see when it's got oh that's a good point, you know. But if it's if it's wrong or it's just ignored or it's seen as outdated, that that's a very painful personal thing. So yeah, to have have some more whiskey, have well, some more opiates. And, you strike me as a person, and I say this mostly through. I mean, we've just met, so I say this mostly through um, listening to your music as a person who has always cared more about the song than the performance, which is to say, not that you've never cared about the performance, but it's it's about the writing and creating and putting into this world. Yeah, I think if we separate 
performance from intensity, you're right, because mm-hmm. it's, I was sloppy in understanding how performance really worked, but I was very demanding my band in terms of how... The, right, you had the, a standard you wanted. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so people were constantly coming along saying, mm-hmm. my God, I did not expect the chills to play doldrums mm. like that, you know. Mm, mm. And some of them like it, but most people did. They, and that was, that was the standard that we had. Mm-hmm. Very much through, again, the whole Toy Love kind of, um, all those kind of early bands that I saw, it was just like pop song or not, it was just delivered, you know, mm. and fantastic. Mm. The, the Clean, obviously, you know, saw them probably more than any other band in the early days, and it's still one of the best bands I've ever seen as the early 80s Clean. Well, I think the late two. Thousand early 2010s clean was pretty amazing that's, too. Yeah, you know, what, like yeah. you know, I, f- I feel like they're one of those bands that maybe they started playing a gig once in the late 70s, and in a way, it's still going. Yeah. And you just happen to come along in the middle of its sentence or paragraph or chapter and see it. Yeah. I'm sure people have their favourite moments and lineups and albums with that band, but it's almost like they've. They're constantly playing a gig somewhere in a parallel universe, and we're lucky yeah. enough if we get to step in and see them. Yeah, that's a good. Way of that. <laughs> but but there was a fiery intensity to those sure. shows, which yeah, was yeah. unprecedented. Yes. And, um, and I think I've, I've said enough in the press that I just assumed that was really good, but there would be better bands overseas. And then you start seeing some of your favourite bands. Very few of them came up to that kind of you know, just really mind-blowing stuff. Mm, Before mm. David got, as he said, sick of the pyrotechnics. Yes. Um, and, you know, but there was that glorious moment when he didn't. And it was, and, I mean, you, you mentioned opening for Lou Reed, and I mean, he's obviously been a hero of, of some kind to you, and, and, and at least some of his work, and, you, you know, you talk about being nervous about the situation and, and ultimately it being less than ideal in terms of a meet-your-hero moment, but... Um, were there happier situations than that for you? I mean, were there people you got to meet in the industry that you're like, my God, I can't believe I'm on the bill with you or I'm at a gig and I get to meet, you know? Um, yeah, there were, there were, I guess, a number of those. Um, the Violent Themes, we played for them, spoke very highly of us, and <coughs> a lot of people thought we just about blew them off the stage <coughs> in Christchurch on that first tour of mm. theirs. Um, Obviously, getting to work with Van Dyke Parks uh, yes, and, and, and studiously avoiding asking him anything about Smile <laughs> until the very last time we'd gone to dinner at his house, like two days before I was Finally, leave, am I allowed to say this? Yeah. Van Dyke, can I ask you one question about Smile? And it was just something like on one bootleg, they'd put something from. Um, from. Um, the whole kind of Hawaiian thing mm-hmm. and somewhere else and said it was something else. Was that ever part of that? No, mm. it wasn't. And I just I just knew the, the one thing you don't, I learned this very quick, if you want to have a, a meaningful uh, and memorable discussion or meeting with one of your heroes, don't talk about their art. The obvious thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, uh, if you know anything about them, you'll know they're into cricket or you'll know they're into, they collect, you yeah. know. Frisbees or something, and you'll say, Go there, yeah, go there. And then <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden, I did, I did, I did that with John Kale because I did some solo supports with him, yes, just kind of. Um, and they were so, so typical of me, bloody hell. We were on a plane together flying down to here, down from Auckland, mm. and I was reading the magazine, he was sitting two seats away. We'd hardly said a word to each other, 
and all of a sudden there's this article on the Guggenheim in New York. So, have you ever been there? I said to him. And his face just lit up. He said, oh, yeah, it's great. You know, because, uh, because you'd actually go, uh, go to the top of a wheelchair if you wanted and go, wee, all the way down. <laughs> and he was so animated and happy, yeah. I just froze. And I kind of, yeah. I think I just looked at him. So much better than saying to him, you know, what was it like recording the Black Angels death song and having yeah. him just stare at you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the trouble was, <laughs> I just stared at him and back because I, I was kind of, uh, uh, there was nothing else to say. <laughs> And so he eventually kind of like got freaked out by that and went back to his book. Mm, mm, mm. And so the, the, the thing that strikes me as an interestingly um, bookending thing about the chills is you kind of have this, well, it's not early, it's mid-career impetus around being discovered and recognised overseas. And then that's really what accounts for this current wave, which is a decade or so in the making. Yeah. You know, you 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 have um, so you work through this stuff around, you know, self-medicating and wondering whether you're a solo act or whether you can be the chills again, and you work through all of that sort of stuff, and then and then what happens in terms of finding out that actually people, you know, sure people in New Zealand give a shit, but it really requires major numbers, and you, I guess you find out that people in England give a shit about the chills. Well. An extraordinary series of events basically happened. What, first and foremost, is that I just sort of woke up one day and I was over methadone and, and alcohol. It took a lot, a lot longer. It's much more difficult to shake off. But and it took a little, you know, not too much longer after I decided that. I was approached by somebody who was able to offer me treatment for it. As soon as I was clear, it just seemed like I was attracting people with offers of help. It's like they've all been watching and just waiting for me to kind of surface. Mm. And this guy needs to help himself. Yeah. And then as soon as he does, we're in there to help too. Basically. Yeah. And, and people even who hadn't been watching that. Um, mm-hmm. the, the crucial one was 2011 New Year's Eve party stroke 50th birthday party for uh, David Toplitsky, an art, American art dealer in mm. Queenstown, mm. Uh, who just couldn't believe that we weren't sort of being used and set up Far South Records to release that night's uh, live album, which we didn't even know was recorded. Well, we knew we were recording yeah, yeah, ourselves. Yeah, but not for uh, that level, yeah. like not to come out. Yeah, and then that leading very quickly on to being renegotiated, so we shifted to Fire Records. Mm-hmm. Kind of the original Molten Gold single was me finding my feet again. Then conscious choice to not to have a major producer for Silver Bullets because I, um, I didn't want somebody swanning in and saying they'd save my career or to appear like that. I wanted to, it was a finer chance to get in with a good engineer producer, co-producer, <coughs> Brendan Davies, and let me loose with the new technology in the band and mm. find out how the band worked out. And it worked, for, you know. Um, it's almost a bit like a, 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 a sunburn part two without the, the bits you alluded to that are like less than desirable about that. It's exactly. almost like a, and you know, all cylinders firing version of sunburn, yeah. I think. But it's also, you can imagine how nerve-wracking it was just waiting for the thing to go wrong. It was just, <laughs> you know, the chills, yes. thing. Well, yeah, I, I was going to say, like, what's the impact been of 
reading about the, ch- the, the curse of the chills, you know, has that been a frustrating and impactful thing to hear about, to hear someone else's 20 cent spin on your life? Um, I always took it with a grain of salt, I really did, and ultimately you've come to see it like the tag, the delete and sound as things yeah. that I can actually use as opposed to yeah, yeah. get all worried about electronics blame. Yeah, it's out of time. your control yeah. really anyway, isn't it? It's only so gonna cause you harm to think about it too much. Yeah. yeah. So it becomes part of the mythos which yeah. um, I'm sort of you know, hard hard ass enough as a businessman to to realise that's actually a very fortunate thing to have that. Um, the same as particularly with this new album we're getting people all around the world the reviews are really good but also mm. people saying as soon as I heard it not knowing what it was I recognised the chill sound yes. so we've actually you know we've actually entered that realm of a recognisable sound of a band which is just like we could not be you know have any, ask for anything better at this point yes. and and then with the new album working with Greg Haven it was really really good um, and it just yeah we there's, there's a not much more than two and a half weeks in the studio on that, and then, and then mixing. And because of all the hell stuff going on, it was actually a, very much a thrown together record in a lot of ways. The band hadn't heard the song complex until a week before we got in the studio. Um, and it's, and, but they're really locked in with me now, and it's, it's, they've been through some awful times, and they're just really solid. So, because me giving the most trust I've ever given to a bunch of musicians and people that say, you know what I want now, you work with me long enough, let's... Mm. And, oh God, it's such a relief not to be explaining all the time and actually have people who are now starting to... I mean, they're all really good musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, to, to actually... Now I'm going to be really trying to write to allow some of that to come through, you know, because I keep things simple because that's all I can play is simple. It's not fair to kind of restrict the band to that. Yeah. yeah. Now you're a collector, you're an archivist, you're a diarist. Um, Not diarist well, for a long you, time. Well, you were. Yeah. Um, and you've also let film crews into your life. Are you, and you're a songwriter, are you a writer in that you want to get your story down? Is that something that you want to personally do? Have you thought about that or made some attempts to to write any sort of memoir or document any part of your life outside of the songs that do it? Um, and I think they largely do it in quite an opaque way. Yeah, you know? I reckon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think I've been overly fixated on getting the story right, you know, always, mm-hmm. always chasing people out to make sure, no, that didn't happen, and mm. this is a sequence of events and that kind of stuff. Mm, it was um, batteries, not a pie. Yeah. Yeah, it was banana milk, not chocolate milk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, how could he possibly do that? <laughs> and, um, but I do have diaries that I started late 83. Mm. Uh, after Martin Bull's death, I realised, shit, there are things going on in your life that are important. And it's something I'd thought about. I didn't miss a day until <coughs> um, the early 2000s. Wow. So it covers mm. all the overseas stuff and the important stuff. Mm. Um, and it's going to be a massive task to actually... Transcribe it first of all because after our first trip overseas, where the customs officer started reading my diary, and I said, Shit, it's just full of went off, I had a smoke with so and so, (laughs) tried some speed today. (laughs) Um, So after that, I wrote it in the scrawl, which I I can just decipher. Nobody else could do it now. So that's 
that's the core thing. And I'm sure once I've done the transcribing, uh, there'll be the makings of actually a really interesting wee, wee book in there. Because mm. um, a lot of child, a lot of sort of teen, not teen, post-teen sort of young man angst and bitchiness mm. and all this kind of great stuff is in there. Mm. But also meeting people at crucial times that have now become historic. So, mm, mm. Um, so yeah, but at the moment it's been a hugely demanding and sometimes draining experience contributing to the documentary that's been made. It's, mm. it's been opening up of old wounds, it's been hours and, oh, hours and days that's right. um, going through archives and finding yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, what um, else do you think ultimately is there for you to do with the chills? There's been three, I guess, reunion albums in a sense, one live and two very strong studio records, and I imagine you're a person with more songs in the can already. Plenty well, more potentially. Uh, yeah, but we don't, I don't see it as a series of reunions because the band no, has been exactly. it's, it's been yeah. a Each time it's like, the chills are back again, who's he got this yeah. time? It's the same fucking band he's been for 20 years. <laughs> and what we're hoping to do is um, just be like a real band now again and put out a record every two years and mm. finally crack getting back onto the international um, market festival yeah, circuit and hope, you know this is ideally and it's such a different world now trying to you know cost us something like 20 grand to just get us on the train and mm-hmm. but ideally I want to free up the band so they're not having to hold down day jobs we tour with family mem- their family members for maybe a third of the year to a half. Take the family on the road. Yeah. yeah. Um, when necessary and, and then for the rest of the year they're free to do if they want to hold down part-time jobs or you know, other projects. Yeah, yeah. recording, demoing. Um, that would be ideal if we can, if that's what we, we talked about the other day, what are our long-term mm. things. Very hard to achieve but we could not be in a better position to just be at least thinking on one of those places than we are now. And you get tired, I guess, but your health is good for, for the moment. You feel you, you can do it. You've got you've worked out a schedule, obviously, that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, even down to can I do three or four shows in a row? Um, and mm. I, can, I can just get through four of my voice yeah. with that, so long as we don't have the merch desk wiped by the winter open door, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's just learning these kind of things. Mm. Um, I write my songs in a key that I can actually sing in these days, where I didn't, used to know that you could do that. So, um, you know, I'm stuck with things like Heavenly Pocket, which is a really high note yes. constantly through that bloody song. And it's wordy in, in, yeah. in, the, in the scheme of a chill song. It, yeah, it's too yeah. wordy to be a real pop yeah, hit, yeah. but very much a chill But heavenly pop. enough to be a pop hit. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, now, well, before we go and re- you go and rest your voice because you're going to play tonight, is there anything that you want to bring up or that you hope that I'd asked you? Because we've had a good chat and I've loved meeting you and hearing these stories, um, but I'm conscious of the fact that you're going to perform tonight and that you've still got shows to go on this tour. Well, I was just thinking, we haven't talked about 
our shared interests and people like Randy Newman. And stuff. I know when you mentioned when, yeah. you, when you mentioned Randy, I was going to say that that's where I think we have we've bonded is that we've had a few conversations yeah. online around. Um, yeah, music, uh, films, comedy, uh, books, but particularly, yeah, I remember you, you kind of, I don't know how it happened, but you kind of uh, came to me about Randy Newman and we're, yeah. like, and we're like, man, I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, maybe I was posting a, a, a bunch of his clips probably or something like that at the time. I don't know well, what did it was. You, did you or I might have reviewed the new album, the new album or, or something. something. Yeah. One of his, yeah. So I've seen him twice live. That's right. I remember talking. Yeah. Wow. Um, one was the Lonely at the Top compilation, I now mm. realise, I didn't actually realise it at the time, and the other one, oh, Land of Dreams, which was, yeah. and luckily both times, solo, because, yes. you know, it was funny being in with the Warner people and meeting, any Warren crew and meeting, um, oh, who's the other one that's always involved with Randy Newman stuff? Um, I should oh, know. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. But, and, but the other ones, you know, I said, I said to a couple of oh, other people. Oh, Austin. I met him briefly. Right. Welcome aboard, son. Uh, but that was about <laughs> it. But, um, but you know, talking to people, you know, actually, I think Randy Newman is better when he's just by, his, by himself. And, mm. and they'll say, yeah, we all things I do, but don't tell <laughs> don't tell Lenny and don't tell, you know, yeah. they're always trying to market him and to appeal to the new, yeah, the yeah. new kids. But I, I got to meet him briefly, just went, went backstage uh-huh. and as a fan. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And wow. it's one of the more embarrassing stories again. I walked wow. in this, I just kind of couldn't believe it was at the, not the Albert Hall, no, where was it? it was, um, oh gosh, it was you know, a famous London gig uh, theatre. Anyway, just walked backstage with a friend of mine who wasn't a big Randy Newman fan, but I'd taken him along mm. to see. Um, He'd end up starting Hut Records and launching Smashing Pumpkins, actually, the guy, David Boyd. But we kind of heard these voices, walked in this room, there's um, Randy Newman and Mark Knopfler, and <laughs> yeah. Alan Price walks past the door, hi, hi <laughs> Randy, hey Alan, and that was when I realised, first of all, Randy was really tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when yeah, he turned yeah. look at us, <laughs> did his eyes go in different directions? I had no right, idea about right, this. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and yeah, I always remember my dad saying, oh, because my dad's quite short and he loved the song Short People and his thing he would always say is, oh, you know, it's okay that Randy Newman wrote that because he's quite short himself. And I was like, no, 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 he's a big guy. He's a, he's a big guy, you know, like he's tall and he's quite a bear of a man now. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this was the second time I'd seen the first one sound a lot better. Um, mm-hmm. Palladium. Palladium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they just had these ridiculous little bins for, for amplifying the piano. And he was asking people, what did it sound like? And they said, oh, great, Randy, great. And I said, could have sounded better. Um, <laughs> I just thought, how dare these people tell them, you know, they're ripping <laughs> yeah, them off. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I thought, you know, if, if they asked me, everybody shut up and just looked at me. And, <laughs> and then kind of went back to kind of talking. And then he eventually felt, I better come on, go and find out what these two guys yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. He shook her hands and said, you know, and so then I put my foot in it again. Did you enjoy the show? Yeah, it's, it's just, most of it. Uh, <laughs> I said, it's just a shame there aren't more people of my age there. You know, it's kind of like, and then I realised what I've just said is, you know, you've got no appeal anymore yeah, to, yeah, young people. to young people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was, that was great. So, uh, he, I mean, he is a, you're a songwriter, he is a songwriter's songwriter, and there are people who, 
unfairly think of him as a novelty act or really have only come to him through his soundtrack yeah. work, which is fine, that's an entry. But um, how did you arrive at his music? I mean, we, uh, how do, did you find it? Do you, and do you know of John, John Gibson, who does, who's done a lot of kind of theatre compositions mm, and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. A, he's a family friend going back to the late 60s, mm. I think. I think he loaned me um, Little Criminals. Right. Oh, in fact, no, at his house, for some reason, he played me um, in Germany before the war. Right, yeah, in Dusseldorf, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to shock me out of some atrocious music I was listening to, I think. Trying to show me something really good. Mm. And I think within a week, that turned up at Roy Cobble's shop. At the same time, Mm. there was like Sail Away and 12 Songs. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. A back catalogue existed. Because Little Criminals was really my introduction to him. Like, you know, I... I knew of him and was interested in him. I think I watched him talk on a documentary when I was really young. He's on um, All You Need Is Love, I think. Yeah, it might have been one of those. Yeah, yeah, it might have been that. I I definitely, you know, had heard about him and then I'd heard that he'd been a professional songwriter but also had released... This was way before the soundtrack thing had really taken off for him anyway. But I know that Little Criminals was the first thing I first full Randy Newman album I yeah. heard, and obviously the hook there is Short People, but it's a fantastic album I think, and obviously yeah, yeah as you say, there is this it's, and it used to be the thing, didn't it? Uh, maybe less so now, but um, you find an artist like that, and then there's this ready-made back catalogue, yeah. and how exciting to go back to the record store the next week and go, oh well, I'll, you know, I've saved my money, I think I'll get. You know, yeah, I, I think I'll get this now. I think I'll get ragtime. I think I'll get you know whatever it is yeah. that is also there, and um, yeah. I was like that with Bowie as well because um, I just knew I like when I suddenly realised hearing the man who sold the sold the world, not found worth, mm-hmm. on the radio one day, and then I suddenly realised that's the same guy who does that Gene Gene one that I like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and Rebel Rebel, which was not yeah. too long out. Yeah. Before, and, um, and then I discovered the second hand record shop and bought both Aladdin Sane. Oh, no, no. I, not long before, bought my first two proper albums after that rock explosion compilation. I bought Night at the Opera and Ziggy Stardust. Um, Ziggy Stardust because I'd been an annoying teenage brat at uh, going out to friends with my family, with my parents, and the, the guy there said, Oh, look, there's a stereo over there with some headphones, just have a look through. And, there's this David Bowie and a really weird cover because he didn't look like the kind of spiky orange mm-hmm. things in this rainy street. And of course, he put her on, listened to that on headphones, and it was an epiphany. It was just like, this is extraordinary. So I bought Ziggy and Night at the Opera, and then very shortly walked to the store and found Aladdin Sane and Diamond Dogs. Then it was all on. It was just like, I mean, they got every bit of Bowie. So, I think that was around the time that Young Americans came out, so the first actual album bought new was Station to Station. And so it was, yeah. It was, yeah, it was, it was really exciting discovering all that, discovering this whole history of even earlier real recordings, mm-hmm. which I ordered from England, but the first book I had ordered was the images, um, the double album of Duran and stuff. And you, and you haven't stopped being 
a consumer and collector of things. We're I'm, sitting here and you've got a bag of um, yeah. things that you bought from Slobo earlier today and you said to me when I came in, I said, oh, you've, you've managed to have a bit of a look and you said, I didn't have much time. Yeah. But you've got a, more than one thing in that bag. Um, has that always been the case or did you, I've, was, I've, there, was there time out? I've really toned it down a lot. And right. I'm trying to get rid of stuff, especially when I was told I might be dead within two years. Mm, um, mm. Started really having a good think about what I wanted to keep, particularly that I thought I was buying it, a lot of stuff to, to pass on to my family. Mm. And I haven't ended up with a family, so it's kind of. Um, and then all of a sudden, you find a lot of it is just kind of valueless because there are so few people left who have an mm, interest mm. in and these exciting genres like. You know, if you like the cramps, you might also like Tev Falco and you'll like the weird early gun club demos mm. or something. And, you know, I've got all that stuff, but what do you do with it now? It's kind of... So I've got lots of those kind of things I'm trying to sort out at the moment. But um, mm. That's what I say by you're an archivist. I know that you're, you know, you've got a personal archive of material, not, not just your own songs and writings, but you've got a personal archive of you know, in the form of a pop culture collection. You've got yeah. VHS tapes and DVDs and... And I complete this too, which I'm sure mm, is just obsessive mm. compulsive, but you know, when, when I discovered I liked Buffy St. Marie, that meant I had to have every album yeah, of hers yeah, yeah. You know, and check them all out. I've, I've managed to kind of fight off that aspect of my personality I think yeah. but it took a long time you know I was very much like that and and you would get these artists that you you know you maybe only actually liked half of their catalogue but yeah. you you had to have their whole catalogue to understand that and that didn't make you want to get rid of the bits you didn't like you, you actually yeah. still listened to the albums you didn't like as much because you didn't listen to them as much but it helped you understand what you liked about them and also if you'd made the mistake in the past of getting rid of some and then you go to somebody mm -hmm. else's place and hear that record and think, actually, really actually I like that now. Yeah, 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 or I like that side of it or I like those yeah. songs enough that now I guess we're enabled a little bit more now with digital full digital technology and streaming that we can actually access the particular songs we want. Yeah. Um, there, but there's, for some of us, there is still that idea of an ownership around things, of an yeah. a sense of ordering. Um, the idiot was a, a crucial one like that for me because I saw, you know, I, I told you I was on the search to find mm. Biggie and the Stooges. I found this record and <gasps> produced by David Bowie. This is going to be great. Mm. I couldn't stand it. I just did not understand it. Right. And then I went and saw Hello Sailor at the Regent in Dunedin. They played Mike Clubbing and something mm. else. It's like, I really like that. Mm. Went home and listened to it again and I just loved the whole album. And it's just like, something had changed and there, yeah I was going to say there are things you know our tastes are hopefully ever evolving right there are yeah. things that we just uh, sometimes things find you at the right time I've got to go to the toilet yeah, yeah we, we, we can wrap it up I do too so um, okay. uh, you know I, I um, I'm excited to know that there's there's more music coming from you and uh, and, and that possibly we might have some sort of some sort of book some sort of story you think yeah. but there's going to be a story in the form of the documentary yeah and that's I saw the rough cut recently and it's um it's really good I mean mm. it's been aimed at, at a as a proper theatrical feature film mm, right mm, from the start mm. not, not as kind of an hour long mm. TV thing so it, it, it is quite moving I mean I watched it with some of the people involved and there's yeah 
it's kind of weird. I have to sort of step outside myself to, to mm, feel it. Mm, mm. Hey, well, thanks for your time. It's been a, gr- I mean, uh, what a great way to to finally get to meet you, to sit down and have this conversation. I've really loved it. So yeah. thank, thank you for thank you for finding the time and uh, and congratulations on the the many different versions of the chills. But as you say, the the most recent one is actually the long serving one. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. There's a part